Okay, we come to the second part of chapter 48, Redemption for the Hard-Hearted. Redemption for the Hard-Hearted, part two, Isaiah 48. As you know, uh, we began a journey in chapter 40 um, some months ago. Uh, Not months ago, it's been over a year in chapter 40 through 48. It was the intention that we would work our way through this. And I'm not sure what to do next. I told you I would probably hit some of the highlight chapters to finish up Isaiah. And then we'll seek the Lord after that, what I'll teach next. It's been a great joy for me because there's so many mountain peak discoveries here. So many high views of God in this text. So many reminders that God loves his people and will be faithful to his covenant. Um, You've heard me say a number of times, the people of God, Judah, they have committed covenant treachery. But God is going to be faithful to his covenant. And I've said a number of times as well, as we've looked at uh, a number of historical points about Cyrus and about the exile and even cultural things about what was life like in Babylon. What was it like when God says they're going to return again? But in the end, one might say, well, those are just historical lessons, but you shouldn't. Uh, They're very relevant for your life, and they're relevant for your life because this same God who is absolutely thoroughly faithful then is the same God who is absolutely thoroughly faithful now. Do you agree with that? A faithful God is a faithful God. And so we have to be resolved to believe that, to accept it, to walk in that reality. And even in this final chapter, there is a climactic um, word for us because now we learn again that God is going to be faithful to his people despite them. And that's why it's entitled Redemption for the Hard-Hearted. You might say redemption for the stubborn, redemption for those that are not listeners, redemption for the sinful. And we can all, at least we should all, identify with that in some measure because all of us, before we came to Christ, were were we? We were all stubborn and we were all hard-hearted and we were surely all sinful. But I have a question to continue in our thought this morning as we introduce this lesson, and it is this. Is sin worth it? Is sin worth it? You say, wait a minute, why I ask that question? Well, because that's the question that Judas should have been asking. That's the question that they missed out on. Had they asked and said, is sin worth it? Because they had the opportunity, as you remember, uh, their northern brothers were taken away by the Assyrians. And here is a period of time where they could have looked to the northern brothers and said, let's not follow in that path. Sin isn't worth it. Look what has happened to them. But what did they do? What did Judah do? Instead of being humble about it, I think there was a sense of pride because we, there were some excellent kings in Judah. But yet eventually, although they had excellent kings, it would not carry them through faithfulness. And they're carried away by Babylon. And you remember, even um, Jeremiah is communicating as he is known to be the weeping prophet He is saying to the people of God, essentially, Babylon is coming. Babylon is coming. You will be carried away. And what did the people of God do then? They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to hear because they would say to Jeremiah, wait a minute, why are you speaking this message? Speak things of peace. And Jeremiah says, peace, peace. No, there is no peace. There will be no peace for you. 
You are committing covenant treachery, and God is going to exact his punishment on you. It is coming. And of course, what do the false prophets do? And the false prophets then are no different than the false prophets today, and they want to tickle the ears, do they not? And Paul said that even from a New Testament standpoint, the days are going to come when people will not hear sound doctrine. They will not hear truth. They will accumulate to themselves these preachers who will tickle their ears. And this is why you see churches that are growing and booming, but you ask yourself a question, why are people coming to these locations? Because they can get their ears what? Tickled. They can get their ears tickled. I was sharing, I'm not sure if I shared it with you um, uh, last Sunday, but I had the privilege actually when I was at um, uh, Anthony and Bobby's church um, a week ago in their men's meeting and sharing with the men there how I was listening to a preacher and he made this statement and his congregation was clapping as he made this statement, and he is surely a false teacher. He is surely one of the false prophets in this context, and he made this statement, two things that he said that I thought were atrocious, and I'm sure that you would agree as well. One Statement number one, he said that I can't understand why there's so much pushback against the LGBT community. And you know what else he said to follow up with it that made it even worse He said that some of you simply don't understand God's creative hand. Now think about that. What's the implication of that statement? He's essentially said that God has participated in creating this community. This is an aspect of his children. This is an aspect of what God is doing in the world. These people are fully acceptable to him just as you are. Now stop for a moment and I want to make sure you do understand the gospel Because the gospel can save any of them, amen? And I've known people that were in that lifestyle. I've had family members in that lifestyle. Friends that I thought were another way, and I found that they were this way. But God saved them. And that's the grace of God, is it not? But what you don't do is like this false teacher was saying, no, that's a part of God's creative hand. Because the moment you do that, you've allowed those people to live in a comfort level in their sin. In the end, sin is not worth that. Because they'll have to give in a reckoning. Um, The scripture is clear. Murderers and liars and homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of God. The most loving thing you can do is to confront someone and say, friend, this is unacceptable to the Lord. And then this false teacher as well made this statement. He talked about abortion. And it says, some of you, we have to divorce ourselves, he says, from patriarchal, um, he says, animosity. And what he's essentially saying, that we men, uh, we need to back off a little bit and not stop being so manly. Well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what woman wants to marry a man that's backing away from being manly. No, none of you do, right? None of you single ladies? None of you married women, do you want your man to be less manly? No, I didn't think so, so let's move on. No. <laughs> And so what he said is that we have to back away from this. And he said this, when it comes to abortion, he says, well, if you're against abortion, and listen to this statement, well, just don't have one then. Oh, but here's the problem with it. On each statement, people were (laughs) clapping. After each statement, (laughs) because they've done what? Accumulated a preacher who would do what? 
tickle their ears. God is saying, listen, sin is not worth it. And he's saying to Judah, he's writing to them, you in your captivity, you will pay a price. But yet, despite your hard-heartedness and despite the fact that you did not listen, I will redeem you. That's good news. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to return you again to the land. You don't deserve it, but yet I am a gracious God and I will be glorified through it. Because where would any of us be if we um, received the things that we deserve? Well, I know where we would be. I know what our eternal destiny would be. And so we need to remind ourselves of these great truths that sometimes we, we want to think about things that we believe are more complicated. No, there's there's nothing more grand and profound than the reality that the living God, who is a God of holiness and kindness and greatness, says to you, I will redeem you. There's nothing more profound than that. That this God, no need in himself, would give his only begotten son that you might have life and that you might have life abundantly. But people trade that every day because they think in the moment sin is worth it. But it's not. Sin has them in captivity in Babylon, away from their homeland. And sin has them compromising. And sin has them going through suffering. So this chapter shows several things. And what are some of the things that we see in this chapter? Well, we see false piety in verses 1 and 2. We see blatant obstinance in verse 4. They are, in fact, a stubborn people. We see vain reliance on false gods. We see that in verse 5. We see in verses 9 through 11, there is a divine purpose because God, in fact, will deliver. Despite the fact that you're involved in false piety, despite the fact that you're stubborn, Despite the fact that you have been depending on false gods, I will glorify myself by redeeming you or returning you to the land. And then we learn in in verse 22, there is also sober warning. And what is that sober warning? There is no rest for the wicked. Now, the chapter unfolds this way. Let me give you the outline. And there are five parts to it. We've already looked at two of them. Redeemed despite insincere worship. Redeemed because Yahweh is all-knowing. Redeemed to demonstrate his greatness. And we would say redeemed for his glory alone. And redeemed through his matchless sovereignty. We've already considered the first two. Insincere worship. But God says, yes, you are insincere. And I'm letting you know that. But I will return you because I promise to do so. You're going to be redeemed because I am all-knowing. Your gods know nothing. They cannot detect They cannot pronounce the future. I can and I have. And that's a reminder to you that I am the all-knowing God, not these false gods that you would trust. And then God is also a God that is going to redeem because he wants to show his greatness. And this is where we pick up. Notice chapter 48, verse 6. Chapter 48, verse 6. And what does he say? You have heard, look at all this. And you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you have not heard them. So you will not say, Behold, I knew them. You have not heard, you have not known, 
Even from long ago, your ear has not been opened because I knew that you would deal treacherously and you have been called a rebel from birth. So what is communicating here? God redeems because he wants to show his greatness. The first thing to consider is when he says here, new things. What does he mean by these new things? Because we've been seeing throughout Isaiah 40 to 48, the old things, and I'm going to do a new thing. And I'm going to bring forth to you a new message, and this is an old message. And now, what is he communicating here? New things. I think the best position to take here is that there is a new thing that's going to happen, and there's going to a servant that's going to come, and he will do what you should have done, Israel. The true servant is on the way. That is a new thing that I'm doing. And this goes even beyond the fact that Cyrus, who is a servant, is going to come and deliver him. Even beyond Cyrus, there is an ultimate servant who is going to come, and he will be endowed with the Spirit. That is a new thing that I am going to do. And we'll see that later on as Isaiah unfolds, which we will look at chapter 50. And we'll look at 49, and we'll look at most likely 50. We will look at 50 and 52, without a doubt, because Christ is going to come. So he assures them of that. And in the immediate context, what he's going to do I'm going to take you out of Babylon and bring you back to the land. Notice, if you will, verse 7, created. He says, these things were hidden. I proclaimed to you new things from this time, even things hidden, which you have not known. They were created now and not long ago. And before today, you had not heard them so that you will not say, behold, I knew them. So why? First of all, this word created. And the word that's used for creation here implies that divine power is necessary. Why is that important? Because he's making a statement here. You have no ability to create the way that I do. Man has a certain capacity. And we look around and he does have a certain skill set, if you will. But yet he cannot create in the way that God does. Man cannot bara, if you will. Why? He, He wants to make this statement So they'll realize that your knowledge is dependent upon me. Don't think that you can figure out life. Don't think you can even figure out the future. It is not to be figured out. It is to be listened. I'm the one that knows the future. Listen to what I'm communicating to you, and then you will know the future. You have no ability in yourself to determine what the future will be. And you may remember last week I talked to you about an advertisement that I saw on an app that I, I still have the app, but they've trended through the advertisements. And I used to get these advertisements for um, the psychic. That's right. <laughs> the psychic. You may have had that same app <laughs> for the psychic. And I thought, this is weird. I mean, I would just as soon get an advertisement for some little silly game or something like that. And I can just ignore that. When are we at a point where we're advertising for psychics? And the, the problem with the psychic is why you need advertisement. <laughs> you, you should already know your clients, right? <laughs> I mean, my goodness. And of course, as I said before, what, how do some of these people make their money? They make these general statements. It's like some of these false preachers today. You're in some, quote, revival meeting, and they come up and they tell someone that you're having difficulty in life. I ask you a question right now. Anyone in this room that's not having some difficulty in life? Huh? I didn't think so. All right. 
Anyone in this room that you can say, well, someone that you love has hurt you in life, haven't they? <laughs> Is that not true for all of us here? And in part, what God was saying to them, you think you have some knowledge? No. And this is why he said, if you really have knowledge, remember what I said to you last week? God said, tell it to me in order. In order. If you can give me times and places and dates and people and when and how, then perhaps you will have a case. But until then, be silent, is what he's communicating. No. God is the one that has this knowledge. Notice verse 8. We notice here the divine awareness of the hardness of heart. Divine awareness of the hardness of heart. He says, you have not heard. You've not known long ago. Your ear was not open. So this emphasis here in, in the language where he's constantly saying, you haven't heard it. You haven't known it. Your ear has not been open to it. Because I knew. I knew. You had no knowledge, but I was fully aware that you would do what? You would be faithful? No, that's not what he says. That you would abide, that you would respond properly? No, not at all. You would deal treacherously. I knew your heart. You're a treacherous people. And he says, not only are you a treacherous people, he says, you have been what? Notice verse 8. You have been called a rebel from birth. And literally he says, you, you have been a rebelling one from birth. I mean, think about the people of God from them coming into existence as a nation proper. It's been a history of what? Rebelling against the living God. When we were in a trip in Israel and Jordan, there was one experience that we had. Uh, We purposely went out to uh, the wilderness area. And um, we said the people, we talked about how they would have come through this area at a certain time. And we got out of the bus And we were all instructed, take about 15 minutes and go think about something, pray. And it was, that was a, it seemed to be a long 15 minutes. You've been on that bus for a while and it's AC and you can go and get your water and you can sip your water and you can recline your seat. And all of a sudden you're out in the wilderness and it was a good time of reflection. And you're trying to think many years after years of being out here in the wilderness. And what did the people of God want? They wanted to do what? Return to Egypt. In one sense, like some of us, they wanted to get back on the bus. Because in Egypt, didn't we not have these things? Could we not eat figs and dates? That's the stubbornness of heart. And look with me, if you will, Nehemiah. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 9. In Nehemiah 9, notice what God says here about the people of God. Um, Verse 16, let's start there. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. Why are we hearing that? We normally don't hear that. Is that the kids? Oh, I thought it was like a recording or something. They're really having a super time today, right? Wow. Wow. Okay, who's to say that people don't have fun at Grace Church, right? (laughs) Notice what he says. Would not listen to your commandments. This is what we see in chapter 48. Listen, listen, listen. And here, they wouldn't listen. Verse 17, they refused to listen, and they did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. 
So they became what? How, what did they become? Stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, here's the contrast. And this is why I'm saying a message is entitled Redemption Even for the Hard-Hearted. Because notice what he says in the middle of verse 17. But you are God of compassion, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Amen. Aren't you glad even today from a New Testament perspective that the Lord will never forsake us? The question is, even for you, if you apply this text to your own life, have you not been stubborn? Have you not at one one point in time, perhaps, maybe some of you not, in some measure wanting to go back to Egypt, if you will? Go back to your old ways, your old thoughts, your old habits, your old pleasures. And he says, but no, he didn't forsake them. He surely can't forsake us because now our relationship to God is through Christ. It is impossible. Impossible. The stubbornness of people. John chapter 6. God knows, has an awareness of the stubborn heart. In John chapter 6, what do you see in John chapter 6? Uh, Christ is that bread that comes down from heaven. But yet, the people of God, some want to re- some are not ready to receive the words of Christ. Because what is it says? Well, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And it says, and many of his disciples were no longer walking with him. Why? They were no longer walking with him because this statement, it says, that's entirely too much for me. Uh, I, when I was, became your disciple, simply a follower, and the word disciple, just a follower of Christ, some would fall away because I, essentially I didn't sign up for such a sober commitment to you. Stubbornness. Here's a fourth consideration. Redeemed for his glory alone. Redeemed for his glory alone. Go back to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. So in verse 9, what we see here we come to the central focus, really, of these chapters. And it is the glory of God. Uh, Early in our study, we considered the fact that God does all things for his glory. That's something that we know. We've heard it many, many times before. We've considered it many times before. But it is something that must be central to our thinking, to our decisions, and how we make every lifestyle choice. Can I do it to the glory of God and for the glory of God because my, I have been bought with the price to live unto what? The glory of God. Before we live elsewhere. That is, we live not elsewhere. Well, you could say elsewhere, literally, because we were in the kingdom of darkness. And we lived according to that kingdom of darkness. So his glory means what? The sum of all of his perfections. Glory is not an attribute of God. It's the sum of his perfections. And the mind naturally perhaps goes to Ephesians chapter 1. You remember Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. All things are done ultimately for the praise of his glory. And this is what we see. It's good to remind ourselves of this because this has to be the motivation for our life. God did not save because anyone had any particular potential. God chose us. God saved us that he would rescue us for the glory of his name. He wanted the world to see God's, 
God wanted the world to see his indissoluble grace and his kindness and his mercy and his sovereign hand. This is why he saves us. He wants to display his greatness. He is unlike the gods of Babylon. They must be constantly appeased. God is not this way. He says, I have a relationship with you. I've entered into covenant with you, and I will redeem you so that I will be glorified. Not an angry deity of these pagans. Look with me at Psalm 130. Psalm 130 captures this thought that in surely he redeems. Why? God, we heard from Nehemiah, they're stubborn people. They're arrogant people. They want to go back to the land. Why not wipe them out and start over? God, why? They had the example of the northern tribes who went out to Assyria, but yet they committed some of the same acts of covenant treachery. Why would you return them to the land? Why do you do this? Well, in part, Psalm 130 helps answer it. And I'll just read, start at verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So important, verses 3 and 4. If you, Yahweh, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What's the answer to that question? Thank you. Verse 4, but, here's the contrast, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, that you may be revered. You act differently than all the other false gods of the land. Why do you forgive people, God? That people would say God is unique and distinct and different. What God forgives rebels? I mean, what king says to those that are involved in an insurrection, involved in a coup, I forgive you. And not simply saying, I forgive you, but I will pay the price for your rebellion, for your insurrection, for your coup. This is our God. And he says here in Psalm 130 that you will be feared. Is this true of Baal? Is this this true of Ra? Is this true of Molech? No. When we were... Uh, in Israel, you know, learning all the different valleys that go around, um, you know, just Jerusalem. And you do know it was an educational study. It's something what the seminary does every year. And I tagged along this year, Joanne and I, and it was a great experience. But it is educational. And because it is educational, we don't have to have an official guide with us. But it was also true that we had quizzes. We had quizzes. And I thought, wait a minute, I didn't... I'm I'm done with quizzes. Like, wait a minute, I give quizzes. I don't I don't take quizzes anymore. <laughs> What's going on here? And I got a quiz, and I thought, oh my, I need a quiz, because I looked at the valleys. I thought, okay, which? I absolutely know, you know, the Hinnon Valley. I know Kidron Valley, and others that I'm aware of. But there are others I thought I've never heard of that before. Shame on me. But there's one that we study is the Hinnon Valley. Hinnon, Gehenna, trash, burning, hell. And here's the reason why it's significant. And there are always these sober moments when you educate yourself further. Um, You remember uh, the scriptures that tell us that the children passed through the fire where they were offering their children to Molech. And uh, and we passed... the position would be that right about here we passed by in the Hinnon Valley would have been the idol of Molech. 
and Moloch was this uh, hideous um, idol, sort of like a bull, but he had his belly was open, and his belly would be a furnace. And they would literally, when it says pass through the fire, what they literally mean is that here is Molak, and now we have to appease Molak that's in the Hinnon Valley, and what they're doing is tossing their children in to the furnace. Sin, is sin worth it? Is sin worth it? You think Molech is now going to help you? When Yahweh has promised you goodness, Yahweh has brought you into a land full of milk and honey, and now you would appease Molech? And not just crowd to me a God of kindness and love and compassion who abounds in love and kindness, who is slow to anger, who is compassionate. That's disturbing. I mean, maybe more, I mean, uh, having children, that's just, how, how does a person get to a point how does sin affect a person so much that you could take someone that's come from your loins, if you will, you see some of your image in them, and you say, I will ap- let's appease this God. And here's the beauty of it all. You say, Wait a minute, what are you talking about? Beauty of it all. What beauty is in that? God still forgives. That to me. That to me. <laughs> Is astounding. And this is why I made the point earlier. God says, I will forgive you because I want to display my indissoluble grace and kindness and mercy and goodness and my sovereign hand. I want you to see that I'm distinct from these gods who are not gods. He has been saying for all of these chapters, here we are in this ninth chapter, we'll have these gods deliver you. They cannot. Have these gods predict the future. They cannot. Have these gods save you? They cannot. How can they? Remember, we even talked about here is Baal in chapter 46. Baal will bow down and Nebo is stooped over. Here are these two false gods and they have to be carried into Babylon to be worshipped. And you would worship this God? When I'm the God that has created the heavens and the earth and you would substitute Molech for me? But if you would just return... I would forgive you. That to me is alarming. And I mean it in the most spiritual sense that it, it heightens my appreciation for God. Do you understand what I'm saying? He says, I'll forgive you. This tells us just the, the infinite mercy of God, that nothing truly is beyond him. And I think it is an affront to think otherwise. What you say, what do you mean by that, Hargrove? Why is it an affront to think otherwise? Um, when a person, let's bring this into 2023 perhaps, when a person says, I cannot be forgiven, I've gone too far, that is an affront to God. It is. You've, you've insulted the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You've elevated yourself and your issues beyond what a sovereign God is capable of forgiving and reconciling. Do you agree with me? So he says, I, I want to forgive so that I will be glorified 
is what he communicates here. Notice, if you will, go back to chapter 48, verse 9. Notice what he says, key words that are here. What are the key words? He says, uh, my name. Notice what he says, my praise. And then he says, what else? Um, My own sake, he says. My own sake. And then he says, my glory. It is central to him and that he be recognized. And so God forgiving people and redeeming people and bringing an obstinate people back from Babylon into their land, God's name is recognized. Notice God's gracious restraint and purposes because he says what? For the sake of my name, I will delay, I will restrain. But not only will I restrain But I also do this with a purpose. And what is that purpose? It's to refine you. But let's pause for a moment. Name. Why is name important? Name. When we think about name in the context of Scripture, a name often surrounded what? An event, right? So a child is born around a certain event, and a name could be associated with it. Our name is associated with the cause. Our, a name can be a memorial. Our name can represent an attribute of a given person. This is why Jacob is called what? What is Jacob? He's a what? Sort of a slickster, if you will. But he says, well, let's make your name Israel. Name in the context of chapters 40 to 48. Let's go through some of them. Look at chapter 40. Let's look through several of them. Chapter 40, verse 10, God's name. So he says, my name is important. Chapter 40, verse 10, he says here, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling with him. Behold, his rewards are with him and all his recompense. So behold, Yahweh. So Yahweh is his name because in uh, Isaiah 42, 8, he says, And my name is Yahweh. Yahweh, the all-sufficient one. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Look at chapter 40, verse 25. 40, verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Here's the first occurrence of it in chapters 40 to 48. His name is the Holy One. I'm distinct. I'm absolutely and totally pure. Look at verse 28 of chapter 40. His name is... Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God? I am also Yahweh, I'm the creator, and I'm the one that creates the ends of the earth. I am not tired or weary, his name. Look at chapter 41, verse 16. 41, 16, what does it say there? It says, you will winter them, and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Earlier it was simply he is the Holy One, but now he is the Holy One of Israel. Why is that uh, important? Although I'm a God of holiness and distinction and absolute purity, I'm in your midst. I'm in your midst. Look, if you will, to chapter 41, verse 21. 41, 21, again, his name Present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says, his name. And elsewhere in Isaiah 40 to 48, his name, Savior, his name, Redeemer, King of Israel, Yahweh of hosts. 
He is the God of armies. His name, he is the rock. There is no other rock. Why would you, and if we go again to the New Testament, what did Jesus Christ say? Where does your mind go when you think about Jesus Christ referring to a rock? Well, the people that build their lives in two places, are there not? Some build their lives on what? Sand, and others build their lives where? On a rock. And Christ, well, God says here of himself, I am that rock. And he even says by way of this rhetorical question, is there any other rock? I know of none. And since God has established that he's the all-knowing God, when he makes that statement, obviously it's rhetoric. He's saying, since I know of none, none exists. In your mind, you may have created them. In your mind, you may think that Baal is a rock, but he is not. He is sinking sand, and you will sink with it. This is what happens with people today. They devise these gods and they place their lives on these gods, and they sink with them. See, most people at some point in life, uh, they have an objective. What is that objective? Uh, To make a name for themselves. Is is that a reasonable statement? They want to make a name for themselves educationally, academically, professionally, uh, morally, spiritually, even religiously, and the categories can go on. They want to make a name for themselves. Yet in history, there is but one who is deserving of having his name recognized, and that is the rock, the redeemer, the savior, Yahweh, God, king of Jacob, king of Israel, holy one in your midst. The only one. But men rebel all the time because they want to establish a name. Now, to establish a good name is not necessarily bad. Actually, it is biblical because the scripture tells us what? Good name is better than what? Than riches. Have a good name with people. But that good name is based on your realization that you are a person that must be serving the living God. You have a good reputation. As a matter of fact, elders, are, they must have a good reputation even with those where? Outside of the church. A good name. But there's one name. And even for those that we have, over time, I pray, developed a good name for ourselves. And as elders, we have to maintain a a good name or good reputation. We only do it to the glory of God. Would you agree with that? Not to self. Not to self. Yeah. Notice verse 10. Go back to chapter 48. Verse 10. Chapter 48. What does it say here? So I, he restrains, although they were rebels, and he says in verse 9, in order that not to cut you off. Because remember we read from Psalm 130, well, who could stand if you marked iniquities? No one could. Notice verse 10. We can say this is the refinement instead of death. Refinement instead of death. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. But why did they have to go through the Babylonian exile? Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1. Because they didn't quite come out as silver. Isaiah 1 in verse 21. It says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. 
your silver has become dross and your drink diluted with water. Your silver should have been something that was attractive, if you will, but now it's just dross. And what is dross? Uh, those are the, the impurities that come from a refining process. It, it, it should have been the os- opposite, but it is not that. But praise God, he says, instead of cutting you off altogether, I'll refine you. God is refining all of us, is he not? And notice what he says, he does it through uh, this furnace of affliction. All of us have been through some difficulty in life, haven't you? Yeah, and when you come out on the other side, if you respond to it properly, if you respond to the affliction properly, you can come out like silver and like gold. But if you go through difficulty, I'm not sure if you have experienced this. I'm sure that you have because it's just life. You go through a difficulty and you find your way like the people of God. You're thinking about, oh, it's just manna again. Surely there's something else again. And then you go through this difficulty and you find yourself going through another difficulty. And sometimes, I do say sometimes, no one can say absolutely. Sometimes we go through another difficulty because we have not responded properly to the first. Here I am again. God has to quiz us again and quiz us again and quiz us again. And then we realize, oh, understand your message now. Um, I wish all of us could take just one quiz in life. (laughs) But life is not that way, is it? And what do I mean by that? That you go through one difficulty and you just learn it all. One heartache and you learn it all. One trial and you learn it all. But God, in his great wisdom, knows how to test us. Amen? And he also says we will not be tested even beyond what we're capable of handling. He knows how to test us. And he says, for you, you need a multiple choice. (laughs) And for you, it's true and false. For you, you need a long essay. (laughs) Amen. And I've had them all. (laughs) I had some long essays. And I'm thinking, Lord, I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm writing. Can I turn it in? No, you give me another 10 pages. (laughs) And some have been true and false. Okay, that's true. Oh, it's not? Hmm. Well, I know it's false now. (laughs) And then there's some multiple choices in life. You go through it, and the Lord teaches you these lessons, does he not? He is a master at refining his children, is he not? Because he's just like a good father who realizes, okay, I know what this kid needs. And all of us that have kids, we have to respond to them differently. We can't respond to them all the same way. And that image is even what we considered last week from Psalm 103. He says he's like a father who has compassion on his children. He says he knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And so you have to learn how to deal with your kids differently. And in our household, there are no names given. Um, I mean, they are a kid that got more spanking combined than all the other kids because that's what they needed. And, but there was another kid that kind of flew under the radar because we thought everything was fine, but it wasn't. God is a perfect father, and he says, this is what you need. I'm going to put you in that furnace, and for you, I need to turn up that heat just a bit but it's purifying. Amen. 
if we respond to it properly. Notice verse 11. And we are going to finish today. Verse 11. Notice what it says. Divine motivation. So God, why do you do this? You already said that they're, gonna, they're, re- they're rebels from birth. They were deserving of your wrath, but you delayed it. We understand that it's for your name. And then it's stated here again, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. And notice what he says in, verse, in the middle of the verse. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. I will be recognized for my greatness, is what he's communicating. In chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I won't share my glory with graven images, with these idols. No, I will act in a way that you will see that it is only God that delivered us. It was not our graven images that we cried out to. Look with me at the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Turn with me to Ezekiel. I want you to see some truths here. In Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20. Ezekiel 20. And then in verse 8. Notice what it says. Um, But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. Here's that word again. Listen. They did not cast away their detestable things Um, from their eyes, that is, their idols, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they live, in whose sight I have made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So, he says, I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And notice verse 14. But what happened? I bring them out, but they acted for the sake of my name. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations whose sight I have brought them out. Notice verse 22. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations in whose sight I have brought them out. Constantly, my name. I want my name to be recognized and to be glorified. Why did I bring the people of God out? That they would say, who is a God like this God? Who can deliver like this God? Who delivers a people who are rebellious people? It is only Yahweh, a God of compassion and loving kindness who is slow to anger. Here's our last point. Um, redeemed through his matchless sovereignty. Redeemed through his matchless sovereignty. Go back to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. And what does it communicate? Verse 12. Again, he says, now, listen to me. Verse uh, 14, he says, listen to this. He communicates. So, so important that we hear. So what must be heard? That's the question. What must be heard? What does he want the people of God to see? He is saying, I have promised deliverance. It's coming. What does he want them to hear? Number one, verse 12, he wants them to hear that he is the eternal God. I am the eternal God. Hear this. I am the first and the last. I know all things. Trust me. What does he want them to hear? Verse 13, he is the creating God. Notice verse 13. 
Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out all the heavens. When I called to them, they stand together. And this is important because notice what he's saying. I am the one that created all the heavens and the earth. I call out to them, and they stand together. That is, um, the heavens are at my bidding. But isn't it interesting that God says, I created you, I've called you, but you're not standing together. You're not falling at attention. But yet I will be gracious to you. What does he want them to hear? Verses 14 to 16. He wants them to hear that he is a sovereign God. I'm the sovereign God. How is he sovereign? Assemble together. Declare these things. Notice what he says. The Lord loves him. So we have to pause for a moment. Who is he referring to? He is referring to Cyrus. Cyrus the Persian. I love Cyrus and he will carry out my good pleasure in Babylon because Cyrus is going to come and defeat the Babylonians. And his arm will be against the Chaldeans, another word for saying Babylonians. I'm a sovereign God. I can take someone, this Persian, who I'm going to allow him to destroy all of these other nations on his way to Babylon because that is my purpose. My promise will be fulfilled. And he says in verse 15, even I have spoken, indeed I have called, I have brought him, and I will make his way successful. Why was Cyrus such a great warrior? Because of what? God's sovereign hand. And then he says, come near to me, listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. There is one who is coming, and his spirit will be on him. And I think now he's, he's now looking ahead to the true servant, Christ. What else do we need to see? Let's some concluding thoughts. Verses 17 to 19. What must they consider? Because notice verse 17. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. What do you want us to understand, God? Well, they should understand this. Forfeited peace because of stubbornness. You've been so stubborn, you're forfeiting peace. Notice verse 18. If you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would be like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea, but you didn't. Is sin worth it? It's not. What were your substitutes? Do they fulfill you? They do not. And he says, your descendants would be like the sand, and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence, but you chose to do otherwise. But even here, he says, yes, you have forfeited it, but yet, There's freedom from captivity because of grace. So now grace is introduced again. He says what? Go forth from Babylon, free from the Chaldeans. Because you may have thought after verse 19, you would say to themselves, look at these rebellious people. They forfeited it. And you would think now, go further into captivity. But he doesn't say that. I'm going to deliver you because I promised it. And then in verse 22 forfeit peace because of stubbornness. You will come back to the land, but you won't have the peace you could have enjoyed had you come back with these truly and fully repentant hearts. I'm going to redeem you, return you in one sense is what he's saying, but you won't experience the fullness of what you could have. Here's a final thought. It's this, a final thought for you. If you could see the outcome, what would you choose? I mean, if you could say this decision will lead to this consequence, 
Would you choose it? Well, in some ways, we'd have to say yes, because we do it all the time. You say, wait a minute, help me understand that. Because God is saying in certain actions, decisions, here is the consequence. And people choose all the time. Now, there may be things that perhaps if you could look into the future and you could actually feel the damage it would cause you, and if you could feel and see the damage it would cause your family, maybe you would choose otherwise. But there's something about the heart when God has revealed in his word, if you make certain decisions, there will be consequences that people still make those choices. It was Judah. Look at your northern brothers. See what happened to them. Why are you making this choice? And they did. Revelation for hundreds and hundreds of years. But why are they still making that choice? Why? Because of the stubbornness of the heart. God is a patient God, is he not? (laughs) And he's a gracious God. And we should all be thankful that even at times when we make decisions, although we know that there may be consequences, that God doesn't always allow us to experience the fullness of those consequences. And here's Judah, surely not deserving, but God says, I'm a gracious God. I'm going to bring you back to the land for my own name's sake, for my own name's sake. Father, we thank you for these words you give us and pray that they would encourage our hearts. Thank you that you do all of this for your own name, that your name would be feared and glorified. What a blessing that is, how we can rest in that. It is not based on our potential. It is based on you wanting to glorify yourself. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.